This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nelly. Our guest this week is South Dakota Representative Dusty Johnson. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with South Dakota's Dusty Johnson next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Include South Dakota among states where farmers and ranchers have suffered this year due to dry weather. Congressman Dusty Johnson says the verdict is still out on how much his state will lose because of the drought. In Washington, Johnson says there will be policy consequences due to the impact of huge federal spending. All of the spending that Congress has been doing is a problem. You know, the, uh, the, uh, America's ability to borrow is not unlimited. And so when you spend trillions and trillions and trillions, at some point it does make it more difficult for us to fund other standard operations uh, of government. And so we know that a crop insurance program has to be risk-based. We know that it's got to be actuarially sound. Uh, those are the kind of principles that have really guided us in past farm bills. We need to make sure that uh, those are the principles that guide us in the next farm bill. Uh, but, yeah, we absolutely need to be concerned. I mean, we want a safety net, you know, for America's ag producers that guarantee them that one bad weather event isn't going to kick the family out of the business forever. And all of this spending makes it more difficult to fund those critically important priorities. A lot of activity on both sides of the Congress, and this interview is taking place prior to Sunday. Next week holds the deadline from the end of one fiscal year into the next. What pressure do the deadlines create on the debt ceiling, on the budget, and on other issues that are so important right now? Well, Peter DeFazio is the chairman of the Transportation Committee. He's a Democrat who's been around here, I don't know, maybe 25 years. And he says he has never seen a confluence of major deadlines like this. Now, I'm a newbie. I've only been around a couple years. So for all I know, he's whistling Dixie, but I bet he's not. And the reality is we have, uh, you know, let this town get way too dysfunctional. We lurch from one crisis deadline to another. We've let four of them kind of pile up here all in the next two weeks. Shame on us. And, you know, as somebody who is in the minority, I mean, I'm pretty frustrated because we're not even in the game. You know, I just think that, I mean, I want to find bipartisan solutions, but it is pretty hard to do that when Speaker Pulsey has just decided that she'll get the votes she needs on the debt ceiling from one party in the House. She will pass the appropriations bills from one party in the House. She'll get the vote she uh, wants for a $1.2 trillion infrastructure package and a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package from one party in the House. She's not talking to us, and i got to tell you that that one-party solutions are not in the long-term best interest of this nation. 
Is the GOP or has the GOP been whipping against the infrastructure bill, knowing that Bill Back Better is tied to infrastructure, especially in the House? Yeah, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, the top two Republicans in the House, did announce a couple of days ago that they would be whipping against the, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package. It's not want to put whipping in quotes. A lot of people assume that they put you in a headlock or maybe they put your head in the toilet and give you a swirly. Uh, this is, there are no instruments of torture here. I mean, I have been whipped on those bills, which meant somebody from the whip team came over and asked me what I was going to do. I told them and they walked away. And that has been uh, the case for every single bill they've ever, quote, whipped me on. Uh, they don't lobby me. They don't, uh, you know, put my fingers in, in some sort of a torture device. They just want to get a sense of where people are because they don't like to be surprised. Now, I do think, I should say this, when they announce that they're going to whip against the bill, that does have incredibly powerful, persuasive effect. It does send the message that, hey, everybody on the team, we want the team to all go right. You know, most people understand the importance of, of trying to stick together with, with big-picture messaging. So I'm sure when they made that announcement, it did undercut uh, what was probably already pretty limited support for th- th- these massive spending bills uh, combined. So what are the consequences if this infrastructure bill, the $1.2 trillion, if it fails in the House? Well, and I want to provide a little bit of context. I mean, the last five-year uh, highway bill we had, which was a pretty good piece of bipartisan work, that was $305 billion over five years, $305 billion. So when you start talking about $1.2 now granted, it's over a little longer time frame. Some of the spending seven years, some's eight, and it doesn't include just highways. It's got things like water and broadband in there, too. But still, quadruple the price tag is a big, big number. And so, you know, if it were to go down, I'm absolutely confident that infrastructure is going to remain a strong bipartisan priority, and I don't have any doubt that we'd be able to uh, pull it together, and maybe we'd actually have a better shot for a chance of working uh, a two-party solution in the House on infrastructure. Uh, you know, 1.2, is, uh, that's a real big number. I understand there's a non-bonding resolution that suggested a vote would come the 27th, which is Monday, on the infrastructure bill. And it would be in some way tied to, uh, or or how is it tied to the bill back better that the majority in the House and the Senate is trying to push through now? Well, anybody who tells you these two things aren't linked in some way is, you know, I don't, I don't know that maybe they're not paying attention to the score of the game. I mean, they're not linked explicitly. I mean, listen, one of them could pass and one of them could fail. So their 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 fates are not in, uh, you know inextricably linked together. Uh, uh, but but that being said, the negotiation on the Democratic side of the aisle is absolutely happening in tandem, which is hey uh, you know the far left, can we get you to vote on an infrastructure package and what do we need to do on the 3.5 trillion reconciliation package to get you to be comfortable with a yes on the infrastructure vote because that's the one that's going first. And it is admittedly a pretty big game of trust me. And I don't know how that's all going to shake out, but I would tell you that at least on the Democratic side, they are very closely linked. And I think that's a shame. I just, you know, it's almost like Joe Biden decided that he was going to try to do every single major piece of his his agenda in one bill, the reconciliation bill. Now, that is not how FDR did the New Deal. That was dozens of pieces of legislation that he passed over years. When LBJ decided to do, uh, you know, the Great Society, he, he did he he did not do that 
uh, with one bill. He did it with dozens of bills over years. And so I think Biden is biting off a really, really big bite with this, this $3.5 trillion. I think that, you know, the infrastructure bill, I think reasonable people can disagree on. The $3.5 trillion, I think, is a real dog, and I hope that thing goes down. With regard to budget reconciliation, I understand we're vague on details, especially even in agriculture, but that there has been a deal on funding, and that would include changes to tax policy. What can you offer? Yeah, I have not seen. I, I did see uh, today's uh, announcement. Uh, today would uh, be Thursday uh, for your listeners looking backward, and we do have some announcements that they reached agreement on revenues. But you know, details, specific details, have been pretty slow leaking out. And I know for for ag country, we're concerned about step to basis. We're concerned about uh, you know income taxes. We're concerned about capital gains. We're concerned about uh, inheritance tax exemptions. And to me, the details really matter. You know, uh, if you heard it's taxed at 11 million, that's one thing. If it's at 3 million, that's an entirely different problem. You know, the city slickers don't really understand how big the numbers can get in agriculture in a hurry. You know, if you're a feeder that's got 2,000 cattle, you know, and if, if each of those cattle is worth 2,000 bucks, well, two times two is $4 million. Now, maybe you don't own all those cattle outright, but that's the value of your inventory out there. And the numbers get big in a hurry. And I think if we want to continue to have the intergenerational transfer of wealth from, you know, one farm family to the next generation of that farm family, we've got to be willing to have a tax system that rewards that kind of hard work and stewardship rather than punishes it. Senate Minority Leader on this program, uh, Mitch McConnell, suggesting a paradigm shift that instead of taxing income, that now we're looking at taxing wealth. Is that a paradigm shift, and how does that strike small businesses and agriculture? I would be really surprised if they pull this off. I just think that um, taxing the wealth that people have accumulated 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years ago really seems, I mean, un-American to me. I mean, I don't mind the rich paying their fair share. Of course they should. But you also want to, I mean, in general, you want to reward good behavior and you want to punish bad behavior. And to me, I just don't think saving money should be considered bad behavior. And and I just, I would hate to see what kind of distortion that would send into the marketplace. Let's talk some pending issues. African swine fever discovered earlier this summer in the Dominican Republic. Now it's in Haiti. Has Washington done all it can do? Has the Ag Committee in the House done all that it can? Well, I am banging the drum every single time we get together, and I, I am. Some of my colleagues have been a little slow picking up uh, the, the tune. You know, we had uh, 48, I think 38 amendments actually the other night uh, that dealt with this uh, these uh, this big reconciliation package, the egg part, and I introduced an amendment that would put 75 million dollars in on ASF because it is critically important. And, you know, it could cost us $50 billion over a few years if this thing gets to America, including Puerto Rico. Uh, there'd be a lot of countries that would re- respond very quickly from a protectionist standpoint. And we know that 30% of our pork, 20 to 30%, is exported. Massive, huge problems. We have got to be focused on this. Every single Democrat voted against my amendment. Now, then later on, a few days later, some of them, I was grateful to see, released a letter where they said that, that money has got to be included in these spending packages um you know i haven't seen that they've had a lot of success yet so to me this is a top issue that we are not
not paying enough attention to. At the Cattlemen's Beef Association Convention in Nashville this summer, uh, an example of the challenged system when beef producers say they are willing to invite government in to help with price discovery, when when producers ask for government regulation, it's a good cue or a, there's a pretty solid clue that something's not right. How do you see the progress thus far on beef price discovery? And is everything on the table that should be uh, with regard to the investigation that has been taking place? Yeah, so, and, and these are two different deals. I mean, I do think with price discovery, we gotta have a price discovery, and every fully functional market has got price discovery, and that is not government overreach. That's just the market, uh, telling people what's going on. And, you know, as we've uh, seen more sales shift away from the sale barn and into AMAs, uh, I mean, I think that's fine. I'm not saying we need to stop producers from selling where they want to sell and for the price they want to sell at. But I do think some additional transparency would help with price discovery. And so I'm a big proponent of a beef contract library. We have it on the swine side. It works well. We need it on the beef side. And, uh, you know, as we are talking mandatory price reporting, uh, which we should be, it, it technically expires at the end this month, September, uh, you know, but as we look to extend that or as we look to get a long-term reauthorization of that, we need to work on price discovery and we need to work on transparency. And I think a beef contract library is a great way to get it done. As far as the investigations, yeah, we need to make sure the DOJ and packers and stockyards are doing what they need to do. We have not had enough oversight hearings and, and the committee on ag. I saw a report the other day. We've done fewer uh, uh, oversight hearings this Congress uh, than uh, any recent Congress. And I've certainly seen that at AG. I mean, I don't know why we're not asking these tough questions. It is a constitutional duty. And I think we absolutely should have DOJ and uh, PNS show up and tell us exactly what is going on with their investigations to the extent they can legally tell us. And, and what is their outlook for the industry to try to stop uh, any bad actors that are uh, that are doing business out there? Your Butcher Block Act, is it gaining any traction for small processors? It is, again, well, I was very grateful to see President Biden's announcement last month that uh, they were putting serious resources uh, to bear uh, to, uh, to expand the capacity. We know we're about 6,000 head a day short. Uh, we would get uh, to market equilibrium with prices that made a lot more sense if we had that capacity. Those dollars are going to help. And so he uh, he liked what he saw from the Butcher Block Act. It was a bipartisan bill, and he announced basically doing that administratively. There are some things we'd like to see uh, pass in the Butcher Block Act just because I think it would provide some more structure and some more focus to those dollars. But, uh, you know, the president is moving in the right direction there. I'm very grateful he's taken up our, our, our idea and is running with it. With regard to trade, it is said that we're losing market share and losing sales because of containers where the Chinese are paying a premium to see them not being reloaded but shipped back empty. Uh, I understand that you have been working on legislation for this. Absolutely. It's one of our big legislative pushes right now. I'm working, working with the Democrat John Garamendi out of California, and we are, we would put some pretty clear rules of the road down. We would say that you've got to treat uh, American ag products fairly. Right now, there is some undue discrimination going on. There is an unprecedented amount of American cargo that's being rejected at the ports by these 
ocean carriers. And we've let this marketplace get way out of hand. You know, I'm a big free market guy. Free market is many buyers and many sellers. And 30 years ago, the four largest ocean carriers controlled 10 or 15% of the market. Now they control 85% of the market. And uh, that is an, uh, an environment that is ripe for abuse. And so we just want to make sure that we've got the regulators on the beat, the Federal Maritime Commission, have the power they need to check uh, these bad actions. Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack spent time with the National Association of State Departments of Agriculture and talked about cyber attacks. We've had cyber attacks on meat processing, and last week we had cyber attacks that hit into the grain industry. Is this an issue that's going away, or are we just scratching the surface of a problem that could certainly have an impact on agriculture and producers? This is going to be a bigger and bigger and bigger problem, and our country is not taking it seriously enough. And frankly, neither are the large private sector players in our food supply chain. You know, we had attacks from the Russians or from Russian-affiliated actors that brought down a third of the of the processing capacity. Uh, you know, when when they brought down JBS, and and we did not respond. It, had they dropped bombs, you know, over over processing plants that made a third of our capacity go away, we would have we would have woken up. And instead, we are not hardening ourselves against these kind of attacks every single day. Our systems are being penetrated by bad actors, and we're not doing enough. And again, if we had an ag committee that was doing oversight, we could haul some of these large players in, and we could uh, find out uh, with some specificity what are they doing, because uh, the American consumer and the American producer gets hurt when the guys in the middle are not able to do their job. Congressman, with regard to energy policy, I understand the Biofuels Caucus has offered some challenges for the way the Biden administration is approaching and dealing with the renewable fuel standard. What's your evaluation of the administration on renewable fuel, and and what is the energy decision that's before the country now? Well, uh, Congress is pretty frustrated with Joe Biden right now. I mean, candidate Biden took some pretty strong shots at Donald Trump's treatment of ethanol. And he said, you know, gosh darn it, we can't have all this demand destruction, uh, demand destruction. And when you've got the EPA playing fast and loose and providing these waivers and RVOs are set low, I mean, Biden really leaned in and said that the, uh, the American corn farmer, uh, the soybean farmer, those involved uh, with renewable fuels, that they needed the kind of consistency and predictability that Joe Biden would bring. Well, you know, a few days ago, EPA came out I and mean, setting their targets and way low. They, there was more demand destruction with that uh, announcement than had been done during all of the waivers that the Trump administration had processed. And so there is a lot of frustration. I feel like it's been a bait and switch. I don't understand why we as a country can't just say that 16 million gallons is 16 million gallons. A lot of these... Uh, I, I just I, I don't understand what the, why this is so hard to understand. You've got ethanol, which is 46% less carbon intensive than gasoline. I would think that a Biden administration focused on climate would love biofuels, and I'm hopeful we can get there. When Vermont was offering a set of rules that would change the way foods that included genetic ingredients would be labeled, that would, in essence, have upset the supply chain in the nation, Congress stepped in. Now you have California with Proposition 12, where the voters would say to South Dakota hog farmers, you'll have to raise animals this way if your meat is to be sold within our borders. 
Will Congress have to step up, and will Congress step up on this issue? Well, this is still a developing issue. I would agree with your premise that, you know, the California law is ridiculous. It, uh, if we really want to feed the world, and we do, and I think we're called to, and I think the American agriculture producer has the know-how, the hard work, and the heart necessary to feed the world. Uh, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work with this Prop 12. It makes, uh, it, it makes raising protein uh, financially infeasible. And, and let's not act like this is an unintended consequence of uh, the liberals in California. This is exactly what they want to happen. Their agenda is not animal welfare. For some of them it is. But for many of them, the actual agenda is to make protein so expensive that they can drive down the desire for it and more people go vegetarian, more people go vegan. This is part and parcel of what they want to have accomplished. And I don't know why we're going to let them win. And so I have been one of the strong voices on uh, animal welfare uh, in, in a stewardship way. We can do this. Of course, I have been. I've been to hatcheries, and I have been to you know cattle farms, and I've been to pork processing, and I've, I mean I've been to them all. And and these animals are well cared for because the people running them are decent human beings. Our laws are a good fit for what are necessary. And frankly, animals that are under stress do not put on weight. And so everybody's interests are well aligned here. Uh, the folks who passed uh, Prop 12 don't know what they're talking about. So finally, with regard to the U.N. Food Summit, the U.S. trying to build a coalition that doesn't necessarily go along with the EU's field-to-fork issue, what's at stake in this debate? Well, we need to, and I think domestically, the American farmer and rancher and those associated with, uh, you know, creating food have done a better job. We're further and further off the farm, unfortunately. And I think we've started to do a better job of getting uh, school classrooms in and uh, a better job of trying to convince some of our urban colleagues that, listen, what's going down here, you know, th- th- this is really good. This is sustainable. This is uh, good from an animal welfare perspective. This is how we want to do it. The reason I mention that is I think we need to do a better job internationally. If we're moving in the right direction domestically, I think we're losing ground in places like Europe, where I just don't know that they have any real understanding of, of how food can be produced. You know, you look at the price. I mean, the American farmer's productivity has increased 200 and 87% in a generation. And that is something that is beautiful. That is something to be celebrated. And when we see European skepticism uh, on things like a genetic modification, it shows that uh, we've got some educational work to do, and, and I'm up for the fight. Congressman Johnson, thank you for taking time in a frantic schedule on the Hill to speak with us on this edition of Open Mic. Sir, it is Open Mic, and today you've got the last word. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. And uh, for anybody who's listening that's involved in uh, providing the fuel and the fiber and the food that this world needs, thank you. In Congress, we talk about how hard we work, but you guys are actually getting it done. Thanks. Our thanks to South Dakota U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.